0: that song that we just sang causes us to ask an implied question, doesn't it? The question simply is this, do do you stand on the promise found in the Word of God? Do you stand on all of the promises of the Word of God? Do you orchestrate your life in such a way that if someone knows you, they would know that you are one who stands on the promises of the Word of God. I want us this morning to begin to think about that reality in the difference between religion and relationship. Religion and relationship. Let's take our Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, as we begin our time in the study of the Word of God and, and then participate together in the Lord's table, this whole reality of religion and relationship isn't new into the thinking of us as Christians, particularly into evangelicalism as a whole. <clears throat> and the Bible tells us through the prophet Isaiah that God has an open heart to a certain demeanor of people. A certain kind of heart God opens His heart to. Unfortunately, within evangelicalism today, there is this idea that God accepts all people. And it really doesn't matter what kind of religion you are part of, or what kind of way in which you say you are quote-unquote standing on whatever promises that you believe God has made, that God will accept you. And I am here to say to us this morning in the clearest of terms that I can, that that is a lie that has been perpetuated throughout the ages And has damned many to the eternal darkness of hell. God does not accept all people. In fact, there is an exclusive demeanor that is looked upon by God with eyes of grace and mercy. And it is recorded for us by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 66. God gives us a clear statement concerning His sovereignty over all things, which includes those to whom He grants saving mercy and grace. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, God says in clear words, All these things My hand has made, and so all these things came to be. God declares in just that first few phrases, the reality that everything that Isaiah has looked at, that God has shown him, that that all that has been created and everything that came to be, God has made. And then he says this about his creation of humanity and declaring them, he says, but this is the one to whom I will look. I made all of these things. I made even mankind, but it's to this one that I will look. In other words, it's an exclusive reality. It is not a universal reality. It is to this one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. We sang, "I live on the promises of God." I. I love the promises of God. Do we? Do we? Isaiah 66 verse 2, God is not declaring an activity to be carried out. He's declaring a demeanor of the heart that is reflected in a life. The the demeanor upon which God pours out His mercy and His grace upon That is the demeanor of one who understands their need. They are humble. They are broken before God. That is the demeanor of one who sees their sin as an affront to God and an affront to His holiness. That is the demeanor of all of those who embrace the truth of God and thereby repent of their sin, turning from sin to God by faith in Jesus Christ. God says through the prophet Isaiah that without humility, without the essence of contriteness of heart, without the fear of God because of who he is and what his word says, then there is no saving relationship with God. You might have all the religion you can muster up. You might have all the outward activity that that you believe, thinks, pleases God, and yet God says that's not to whom I look. I look to the one who has humility of heart, contriteness of heart, and who fears me because they understand who I am through my word. The only outcome otherwise is outward religion. Which is human morality just masquerading as relationship with God, but it is not at all. The demeanor of the religious is not humility of heart. It is pride. The demeanor of the religious is not contriteness in life. In other words, understanding a need for each moment of every day that only God can satisfy. The demeanor of the religious is arrogance and self-sufficiency. I can do it my way. It's okay. I don't need that today. I don't need that in my moment. I don't need that in my life. The demeanor of the religious is not trembling before God because of what his word says. It is self-satisfaction that is born from a heart bent on self-righteousness. And therefore, there is no fear of God in its eyes. And so when the word of God is heard, when the word of God is opened, and when the word of God is spoken, it just remains part of a list of moral platitudes but it's never obeyed as God requires. It's just a religious heart. Masquerades as righteousness, but it is not righteousness at all. And God, his holy word clearly shows us that there is no place for religion with Jesus Christ. You can't have Jesus plus. And we've been seeing this through our study of the Gospel of Luke. It has been the ongoing theme over the past several times we've been here. And the intensity of Jesus' words is going to increase as he gets closer and closer to the cross. In fact, Jesus will say in just a few chapters, in Luke chapter 14, you... You have to hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even your own life or you cannot be my disciple. In other words, the outworking of your life has to be in such that if you say you're with me, your life better show it by way of allegiance to me that has a higher love than anything else the outworking of your life, the contriteness of your heart, the humility of your life, the trembling at my word better be seen in your life. You remember last Lord's Day as we were studying here in Luke 11 that Jesus had finished his merciful words to all those who were following him. Jesus is is indicting and yet merciful all at the same time he's performed this miracle by casting out the demon from this man who could not speak the man immediately begins to speak and and to praise god and all who saw it and all who were there should have should have just fell down in worship to Jesus Christ as the god incarnate before them But the conclusion of the religious heart, the conclusion of of the religious leaders of that day, and many people who were following them, was that Jesus was just doing this because he's in concert with Satan. Verse 18 of Luke chapter 11 clearly shows us that. Jesus says, If Satan is also divided against himself, then how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Verse 15, he, they said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Instead of seeing Jesus for who he actually is, instead of seeing their need... Instead of having a humility of heart and a contriteness of spirit, the religious heart just accuses him of being satanic and in essence says to him, if you want us to believe differently, Jesus, then you have to show us more. You haven't given us enough. Verse 16, others were testing him, were demanding to him to show a sign from heaven as if he wasn't a sign himself was bad enough to equate him with Satan. But to say that what he had taught, to say that what he had done was somehow insufficient. It was insufficient to prove that he was from God. That was the height of religious arrogance. Jesus Christ, you're not enough. You need to give me more. Jesus' conclusion to them was very simple and yet very direct. The problem isn't how much you've seen. You've had plenty of light. You've had plenty of the truth shining. You've had plenty of that. And for you to conclude that it isn't enough, that's ridiculous. The problem is here isn't that you need more light, the problem is that you need new eyes. You're blind but you think you see. You see, the problem with you is not that you need more truth. The problem with you is that you can't see the truth that is speaking to you. Why? Because you are actually spiritually blind, even though your religious heart convinces you that you can see. If you were spiritually able to see, then you would never reject me. In fact, John chapter 11 or Luke chapter 11 verse 36 says, "If the if therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined, just as a lamp illumines you with its rays." If you were alive, there's no way you'd reject me because your whole insides would be illumined by the truth. You'd know who I am. And I trust that none of us here have forgotten the question that I asked this last time we were together. I asked this question, what is the first thing all people must recognize if they are either to be saved or, as a Christian, to grow in your faith? What's the first question you need to ask yourself each and every moment of each and every day? You must recognize simply this, that you have a need. That you cannot get through the next moment, you cannot get through the next minute, you cannot get through the next day, you cannot get through the next hour, the next week, the next month without Jesus Christ. And if you really believe that, if you really hold to the promises of God, then that would be a reflection in your life. That would be the outworking in your life. It would be your day-to-day response. Oh, not perfectly, but certainly genuinely. This was the trouble with the people, especially the religious elite. They were morally religious They saw no need for Jesus in their lives. And I don't think it's a shock for any of us here to say, well, that's the same problem with many people today. Right? An unbeliever has to realize their need before they will ever embrace Christ by faith. They don't think they're bad enough, then they'll walk away. I had a gentleman come to the church even this week and I talked to him out here on the porch and and, and he said he was a Christian and yet I could clearly see from his life and the actions of his life, well if you are, then you're certainly not walking by the things that the Word of God says. You need to know who Jesus Christ is. And I began to share the gospel with this man and he said thanks but I, I'm going to just go now. Unless you and I as Christians realize our ongoing need for the truth of Jesus Christ, unless we realize our need for the ongoing saturation of the commands of scripture to us, then we will never hear it as we ought. Oh, we may turn to it. We may read it. We may look at it. We may soothe ourselves and check the box off in our religious morality and say, I've read my Bible today. But if it is not impacting us, if we aren't thinking about the implications and the need in our own heart and how we need to be working this out in our lives, then it really is only religious morality. We will not obey it as we ought, and the outcome will be that we will not grow as we ought. And I truly believe this is a great trouble in the evangelical church of today. There are many uh, professing Christian living a morally religious life. They are progressively convincing themselves that they are mature Christians because they attend church and read their Bibles and even tell others about Jesus. But when it comes to actually doing what the Bible says, when it comes to actually standing on the promises that God makes, well, as long as it doesn't cost me too much of my time, as long as it doesn't cost me too much of my energy or infringe on too much of my life, as long as it doesn't ask me to sacrifice any of my self-indulged freedoms, then okay. But don't ask me any more than that. Why is it like that? Well, I believe it's because we've convinced ourselves that we don't need what Jesus brings. I don't need it. I'm good. I'm okay. It's good for others, but not my life. I've already reached where I need to be. It convicts me, yes, but that's as far as it goes. Beloved, let me say, that is the heart of religion. It's religion in the heart. Why? Because Isaiah 66.2 says that God looks to those who are humble, who are contrite of spirit and those who tremble at his work. And this is exactly who Jesus is confronting in our text. It is the religious heart. We have to remind ourselves, this is not the pagan outside. This isn't the rank unchurched person. This is the God proclaiming religious. This is the heart of the religious exposed for everybody to see. And and, and we began last Lord's Day in verses 37 to 44. And today I want to pick up where we left off. Beginning in verse 45. Notice what Jesus says. One of the lawyers said to him in reply in reply to what? In reply to what he had just said to the Pharisee in this lunch party that he'd been invited to. This lawyer says to Jesus, teacher when you say this you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves won't even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, because you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers. For you've taken away the key of knowledge and you yourselves do not enter and you hindered those who were entering. Welcome to the lunch party. Let's have lunch together. Jesus has just finished a, a merciful message to those who had accused him of being satanic and insufficient. And surprisingly, one of the morally religious asks him over for lunch, the Pharisee. And of course, Jesus knows what's going on. And so right out of the gate, as we saw last Lord's day, he begins to expose their hearts. And I, I gave you several ways in which the religious heart is exposed. And we're going to continue that list today. But let me just remind you of, of what Jesus had said in the previous text, right? The religious the heart of the religious distorts the truth for its own ends. The heart of the religious distorts the truth for its own ends. Verse 38 and 39, when the Pharisees saw it he he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed for the meal. And the Lord said, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. You, you you distort the truth for your own ends. You take what God had said to do for a ceremonial reality in order to show you that you were unclean and you think by doing that that somehow you made yourself clean. And yet inside you don't even see your need. And so the heart of the religious do that. They distort the truth for their own ends. They, they dabble with the truth. They talk about the truth. They interact with the truth, but it's never for the right reasons. Secondly, the heart of the religious judged by the externals, Jesus said, "You foolish ones in verse forty did did not he who made the outside make the inside also give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Jesus is just saying listen you 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 look at the outside only and the inside's the real problem." You think if you just do some religious moral activity that God somehow will be okay with you. And the reality is, it's the inside that God's dealing with. It's the heart. Your heart must be humble, contrite, and tremble at the word. If you tremble at his word, it means your heart is contrite and that you are humble and that you will willingly walk according to what God's word says. You won't judge by the externals. Third, the heart of the religious is self-deceived because of that. Woe to you, Pharisees, verse 42, for you pay tithe and mint and rue, every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You're self-deceived in thinking that your outward morality somehow makes you okay. Because you distort the truth and because you judge by the externals, you think that it's the externals that saves you. You're self-deceived in that. Or at the heart of the religious love prominence because of it. See how good I am? See how well I do? Verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees for you love the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplace. You see, there's no humility there only a love for prominence, a love for me. Hey, look at me. Look how well I'm doing. Look how good of a Christian I am. I do this. I do this. I go to church every week. I read my Bible religiously. I never miss a Bible study. I never do any of that without. I want people to know that I am righteous. I'm certainly not saying that it's good for your Christian life or okay for your Christian life to forgo any of those spiritual disciplines of your life, but certainly they don't make you righteous. They ought to be done out of a love for the Christ that you say you love because, because you know you have a need. You you need God. You need it today. You need it every moment. Not the, not the religious heart. It, it just loves prominence. Look at me. And because of that, the religious heart is damningly dangerous. Verse 44, woe to you, for you, you're like concealed tombs and the people who walk over you are unaware of it. You're like somebody who is totally contaminated, but you don't tell anybody and you don't show anybody. You just hide it. So everybody who touches you is contaminated. You're, you're killing everybody around you because you're promoting something that will save no one. You would think that would have been enough for all who were there to just sit quiet and contemplate their own life. you think that after just that, even before anything was probably served, that they would have just sat there with silence, their hand over their mouth as they contemplate their own place before a holy God. But the religious heart doesn't do that. Why? When truth speaks... The religious heart, number six, you can add it to your list. They just get offended. When truth speaks, the religious heart just gets offended. Notice verse 45. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us also. (laughs) As I pointed out last time, lawyers had been invited to this lunch the only distinction, however, between them and what we know as Pharisees is that they were Pharisees, but they were expert Pharisees. They were experts in the law. The, they were Pharisees at the highest end. They, we might call them the theologians of the day. They, they were law experts. And so when Jesus indicts the religious heart of the Pharisee in general, they also object. Wait a minute, when you say this in general, are you talking about us, the religious leader, the, the theologians? You're insulting us also when you say that, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, when you say these things to our friends, you're insulting us also. Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Jesus says, yep, you're right. Yep you got it, your heart is filled with religion also. Remember years ago when I was in seminary, we lived in a little trailer park and a friend of mine and I used to go to seminary together and we'd walk around the trailer park from time to time. There was a guy down, one of the corners would come out and talk to us and oftentimes we would talk to him about things of scripture and he'd go, I just don't know. We'd go, but the Bible says, and he'd go on saying something, we would say, but the Bible says After about five or six times of doing this in one conversation, he says, I know, I know. The Bible says, I said, now you're getting it. That's what this guy's doing. Jesus says, but here's what the truth is. The guy says, I'm offended by that. Jesus says, now you're getting it. You should be offended. Notice what Jesus says. Woe to you, lawyers. Woe to you, lawyers. You're correct. He gets the idea. You can't charge God in the flesh with some kind of anger here. You can't say, well, Jesus is just being out of touch. He's kind of angry with this guy. No. No, this is Jesus Christ as the carpenter. Every one of his words are a well-driven nail. This guy came to lunch and he's getting served by Jesus, the food for his conscience. Jesus says to him, woe to you lawyers, verse 46. Yeah, you too. Why? Because you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This is the problem with the religious heart. The religious heart gets offended by the truth. Why? Because it doesn't see a need for that in their life. Oh, it's good for everybody else, but not me. The lawyer here thinks he's immune to Jesus' indictment. Jesus, I hear what you're saying. And and in a general sense, that may be true of them. But it's not true of me. Come on, you're getting a bit close to home here. Maybe he thought Jesus would just qualify his words. Maybe he thought he would show that he was addressing only his, his lesser buddies. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he adds more crushing judgments that are even more specific. Woe to you lawyers as well, you law experts, you theologians. Why? Because the heart of the religious, number six, right? It it um, it doesn't like the truth, and so it gets offended by the truth, but also... The heart of the religious number seven makes righteousness a byproduct of a religious morality that even they won't attempt. The religious heart makes a byproduct righteousness. And it's a righteousness that they, even, they won't even attempt. You yourself, Jesus says, will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. He says, listen, they're bad, but you're the worst of all. Why? Because you load up people with all kinds of traditions. You load on them things that they must do if they are to be considered morally righteous. But you, you won't even venture to do it in the least. By the way, the word touch here, Jesus says you won't even touch it. You won't touch the burden. He means you won't even give it the slightest touch. It's the word for touching something with the smallest finger of your hand. You, you, won't, even, you won't even give it a brush. It's not, it's not as if he's saying, hey, listen, you tried and you failed. Yeah, it's okay. No, you would tell others to do it, but you wouldn't even begin to do any of it. I think in years past, and maybe even today, Christian vernacular kind of says walk the walk, don't talk the talk. You you won't even touch it. You won't even touch the the burdens. The bird, the word burden carries the idea of a ship weighed down with cargo. Just let your mind rest on one of those big cargo ships out in the Red Sea right now that's burdened down with all those big containers. That's what he's talking about. A cargo ship. You weigh people down with boatloads of stuff. You don't load yourself with any of it. You're the worst of all. You're you're the experts in the law and this is what you do. You had turned the Old Testament into nothing but law, law, law. And then you add to that tradition, tradition, tradition. And you knew you couldn't live up to the massive amounts that you had loaded on people. You couldn't live it up to yourself. The amount of laws and traditions you have added, no chance to do that. Even the true law of God or real justice, the love of God you ignore. So The lawyer says, well, I'm offended. I'm offended by the truth. Well, that's what the religious heart always is. It's always offended by the truth. Why? Because it says, I don't have a need. What you're saying doesn't get to me. doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm here to say this morning, beloved, even though we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, if the gospel doesn't speak to us even now as we are saved people, then we don't understand the gospel. None of us are right. Only the religious heart is offended by the truth and then they may righteousness, a byproduct of religious morality. And eighth, eighth or third in our list for this morning, the heart of the religious refuse to believe they are unrighteous. Notice verse 47 and 48, woe to you, woe to you because you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them so you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. I don't want us to be confused by this because it sounds, sounds a little strange here. Weren't the prophets good? Shouldn't they be building the tombs of the prophets? Shouldn't they be venerating the prophets? I mean, weren't the prophets good people? And yet Jesus seems to be implying that they shouldn't have been building the tombs of the prophets. Matthew 23, verse 29 through 30 says it this way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Why? Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say... If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You see, in them building the tombs of the prophets, what they were saying is, we agree with the prophets. We agree with what the prophets said. We wouldn't have killed them. We would have done what they said. We wouldn't have done like our fathers did who killed the prophets when the prophets came to speak the word of God. And yet those who killed them were saying, we don't need the prophets. Get rid of the prophets. And they're saying, we wouldn't have done that. If we lived back then, we wouldn't have done that. We build the tombs of the prophets. We venerate the tombs of the prophets. And yet Jesus is saying, yeah, then why don't you follow me? Why don't you listen to what I say? You see, that's the full scope of what Jesus is confronting in this judgment. You give yourself some kind of situational immunity as if to conclude your own innocence when, in fact, you are as guilty as the rest. Jesus is saying to them, listen, far from testifying that you are against the deeds of your fathers who actually killed the messengers of God. You build the tombs of those prophets as if to show you have some kind of liking for them now and yet at the same time you don't follow the one who they were pointing to. You want nothing to do with the greatest prophets. In other words, you are as guilty as those who actually carried out the crime. You want to parade yourself as if you somehow reached the place of pinnacle righteousness in your own morality because you build the, orifice, the, the, the edifice of, of beauty over the prophets as if you love the prophets and yet the very one who's the greatest prophet you want nothing to do with. You hate them because you're just like them. You're like your father. You've rejected not only my message, which tells me you rejected the message of the prophets before. Don't tell me you love the prophets. So you have been witnesses of what your fathers did and in your own way you have approved of what your fathers did because you're doing the same thing. Oh, you can say you wouldn't have killed them, but you are just like them. Beloved, this is the religious heart on display. Offended by the truth, making righteousness a byproduct of its own religious morality, and refusing to believe that it itself is unrighteous. And then ninth, Ninth, the religious heart always minimizes its own guilt, always minimizes its own guilt. Verse 49 through 51, for this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and some they will persecute. Why? So that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Jesus is, is expanding the judgment. Expanding the woe. He is pointing out the full guilt that they are going to receive because of their hypocritical actions. You don't think you have a need for what I'm saying? You don't think you have a need for my word? Well, guess what? Your fathers didn't have a need for the prophets who came to tell them how to come to the Messiah. You want nothing to do with the Messiah and therefore you're just like them. You venerating the prophets, but not following their message, that just shows the extent of your guilt. And Jesus says, that's exactly what God said would happen. Wisdom of God simply means God in his wisdom. That's the idea. God in his wisdom said... In other words, the divine counsel of God foretold of what would take place and you are just in a long line of that guilt. to be charged against this generation. Verse 50 says, why this generation? Meaning the generation that Jesus is speaking with. Why? Why that generation? Because they were simply perpetuating the same lie. They're perpetuating the same religious morality of their forefathers, and God is holding them accountable. They're being held accountable for the sins of their fathers? Well, in some ways they are. They're perpetuating it instead of standing against it. You say, has that kind of generational judgment happened before? Does God actually do that? Has God done that in the past, even before this time? Sure it has. Those of the generation of Noah were killed in the judgment of God through the flood, weren't they? Those who are of the generation that follows the rapture of the church will be judged by the judgment of God in the tribulation, won't they? Jesus Christ was judged for the sin of all who would ever believe upon him, past, present, and future. All of the prophets sent by God to include the apostles. What Jesus says here, for this reason, the wisdom of God said, I I will send them prophets and apostles. Those who speak the word of God, those who, as we heard even this morning in our Sunday school time, foretell the word of God, those who speak the truth and the intent that God means in the words. They're going to kill them. They're going to persecute them. This generation will be charged for that. Why? Because they rejected the message. They reject the message. It's to this one I will look. The one who is humble. The one who is contrite of spirit. Who trembles at my word. The word of God spoken. The word of God foretold. They reject it which just simply means they reject God. You reject what God says. You reject that in your life. You reject acting upon that in your life. You know what you're really saying? God, I don't need you. I don't need you. It's a repudiation of God, even though it's a claim of a relationship with God. God. What does God do? Well, God sent his son. That says, okay, they've killed my prophets, they've killed the apostles, they've persecuted these, they've persecuted those, I'll send my son, they'll listen to him. No. No, they kill him also. It wasn't the pagans that killed Christ, it was the religious heart. The religious heart offended by the truth. The religious heart that makes righteousness a byproduct of its own religious morality. The religious heart that refuses to believe its own unrighteousness. The religious heart always minimizing its own guilt. And then 10th or 5th in your list. Actually, the religious heart always and actually disguises the truth from others. It disguises the truth from others. Notice what Jesus says, woe to you lawyers. I love the progression of this. It's so sharpened. The pencil just seems to get sharper and sharper. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you lawyers. Woe to you. Why? Because you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves didn't enter, and you hindered those who were entering. You disguised the truth from others. This is the pinnacle. As bad as it is to kill the truth tellers, as bad as it is to persecute those who are speaking the truth, it's even worse to withhold and disguise the truth from others. It's exactly what false false religion does. exactly what the heretics do. It's exactly what Satan does. Twisting the truth for its own ends. So that they might keep others from that which might save them. That's the worst of all. Jesus says, you have taken away the key of knowledge. Key of knowledge. That's just referring to the scriptures. You've taken away the truth of God taken away. You've removed it from them. And it's the scriptures that speak of Christ. It's the prophets. The specific knowledge of the Old Testament is the Messiah. That one would come who would save his people from their sins. They kept that from them. Christ is the key. And it was that key that they take away. They hide it from others. Oh, oh, heaven. To get to heaven, just believe in God and be a good person. Just claim that you believe in God. Everybody who believes in God is going to go to heaven. That's what religion says today. Where's Jesus? Jesus is God. He's not a God. He is the God. He's not one of many. He is the only. To say anything else, to do anything else, to conjure up anything else is an absolute lie. It is to remove the key of knowledge. God put that key in his word so that all people could understand so that they might be saved from their sin. The religious moralists made away with Christ. They got rid of him. So those looking for a savior couldn't find it. Just do it your way. And they treated the scriptures as if they were not authoritative. The law, the traditions that they developed, that they drew from the scriptures and added to and made more and more and more were. Authority for salvation. Scriptures were just a moral guide. It's just a platitude. And treating it as that they kept others out. Beloved, that's exactly what religion does. Keeps people out of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Why? Because it makes religious morality the means of salvation rather than the one who came to save. Well, they got what they deserved at lunch. They didn't like it, though. They didn't like it. Jesus was invited to lunch, and he's the one that made the best meal. And they didn't like it. So in the end, number 11, here's what it does. The religious heart looks for ways to remove Jesus. Verse 53 and 54, when he had left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. This is what the religious, offended, moralistic heart Wants to do with Jesus. Why? Because it refuses to see that it needs Jesus. Well, listen, we say, I'm standing on the promises of God. Well, if that isn't being translated into obedience in our lives, then the question is, are we? Are we? Because it's to this one that I will look, God says, to one who is humble, I have a need, contrite of spirit, I'm going to go to God because he's the only one with answers, sufficient in all things. Whatever his word says, I'm going to do it. Tremble at his word. A refusal to see the need will inevitably end with religious morality. It's the outcome of a religious heart. For the unbeliever, the the rank unbeliever, they just want Jesus silenced altogether. But for the religious, for the one who, who actually is saved, but but is actually has a religious heart, you know what they want? They just want Jesus as an attachment. What the scriptures say, when they're heard, they're not acted upon, there's no growth. They remain in stagnant, infant, immature, masquerading as mature and yet the reality is they're just exercising a religion but not a relationship. And it's infectious and it's deadly. We come to the Lord's table this morning. And this is a time for us to, to reflect upon our heart before a holy God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text, all oh, the richness of it, Lord. I, what an indictment, even upon my own heart, as I think about the details, interactions, outworkings in life. Lord, we know this side of heaven, even with being powered by the Holy Spirit, the flesh is weak, that we fail so often. Lord, we don't want to even strive because we know we can't this side of heaven to be perfect. But Lord, we do want to be genuine. Our heart of obedience, may it be genuine in us as we strive each and every moment, each and every day to be saturated in your word and not for it to just be words, but for it to have an impact on us, how we speak, how we interact, crushing our pride causing us to see you and not ourselves, to be humble and contrite. Lord, work on each one of us. Thank you for Jesus Christ in whom we have our hope and are secure, that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Cleanse us, Lord. Make us like your Son. And give us that heart that wants to do what you say. All to your glory and to your praise we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.